This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we're finishing up our four-part series, Seeds of September. And we're considering seeds in a more abstract, metaphorical way along the lines of the seeds of things, the seeds of our own garden life pathways in this world, how they twist and turn, sometimes auguring us into place and sometimes lifting us off our feet and landing us somewhere completely new and unexpected. As life unfolds, we discover the places that they take us and the gifts they offer to us. We're joined in this conversation by Matthew Benson of Stonegate Farm, an 1860s organic estate farm in Balmville, New York, where Matthew grows, photographs, writes about, and shares the vegetables, fruits, and flowers born of this land that he loves. Matthew is an internationally known photographer as well as writer and organic farmer. He lectures frequently on garden food and landscape photography as well as small-scale farming, sustainability, and organics. He serves on a congressional agriculture committee advocating for rights of small organic farmers. His book, Growing Beautiful Food came out from Rodale in 2015 and is based on the growing practices at Stonegate Farm. Matthew joins us today via Skype from his farm in New York. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, Jennifer. Great to be here. I want to start first with you giving listeners a description of your current work and life in the garden at Stonegate Farm. What does it look like? What are you harvesting right now? What is the season offering you, Matthew? I have to say this season has been the most challenging season probably in my 10 plus years of farming at Stonegate uh, simply because of the extremities of weather. Mm. So that's been a bit of a challenge. And we are trying some new things this year. As growers, we are always trying to grow as well. So we are doing more perennials, uh, more medicinal herbs, um, more botanicals. We're starting to do some, some wellness products and tinctures off the farm, all of which have their own challenges. So it's been an interesting transition. We are uh, not only feeding people, but we are also trying to cultivate uh, a whole other way of healing and, and nurturing through botanical products. So it's exciting, but the, but the weather certainly has been a challenge. We've had a lot of weather that's been inclement out in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. The farm, as always, uh, starts out a bit as a blank canvas that we sort of paint up with annuals every season. And this season has been uh, perennials added to the mix um, and sort of potent um, um, healing perennials, which are, are, are a wonderful challenge for us. Give us uh, a list of some of the standout medicinal herbs that you're growing and some of the annuals that are your mainstay this time of year. Sure. So the the perennial medicinals, um, both herbs and botanicals, we're growing uh, alcamilla mollis, mm-hmm. uh, and we're growing echinacea, we're growing lavender, uh, we're growing comfrey, we're growing yarrow, we're growing bergamot. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also growing some culinary herbs as well, sage, thyme, oregano, others, rosemary. And we also are growing our standard sort of kitchen uh, greens. We love to grow exotic greens like shiso and red veined sorrel and all sorts of mizunas and mustards and lettuces and edible flowers and, and things like that. So that the farm is, is, is pretty full this time of year. And uh, we have an orchard that's uh, deeply weighted in fruit at this point. We have all of our historic pears and apples and quince. Um, and we've had harvest recently of Aronia melanocarpa, which is a super high antioxidant native uh, shrub that we grow. Uh, we grow black currant, uh, which we love, and we grow um, some historic grape on the on the property as well. So there's there's a lot a lot of constituent parts to this little universe of a farm that we have, and they're all <laughs> sort of uh, in orbit around us and. Um, uh, you know, that's one of the joys of, of every season of, of growing the way I grow is that you you really are in orbit around all of these um, all of these elements of the farm that are looking for harmony with each other. You know, mm-hmm. you've got bees foraging and you've got 
chickens laying and, and creating compost and, 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 and nitrogen for us. And you've got uh, flowers and you've got um, all the vegetables and uh, the kind of the conceit of a small farm like this, since it's really hard to grow in the scale where you could make profit, is to grow things that are not really available in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we love that's just coming into fruit right now or coming into ripeness is quince. And so the quints are getting pretty heavy on the branch and, and turning golden and getting that nice fleece on them. So it's quite exciting, both visually for me as a photographer and narratively as a writer, to think about these things uh, having their season and their time on the farm. Yeah. And that is a perfect segue into my next question, which is take us back a little bit, because you were not a gardener farmer before about 10 years ago. Tell us a little bit about your your early influences in life or the earliest that made you know you were going to be a plant garden nature nurturing person. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think the knowing yeah the knowing came later. I think I think a lot of the beginnings were um, very sort of uh, empirical and deep and not necessarily known by me. Mm-hmm. I grew up in um, I grew up in northern Europe uh, in Scandinavia actually where nature is an obsession and light is an obsession and a kind of relationship um, between nature that's um, reciprocal where you know you need it and it needs you in a deep way mm-hmm. and not only in terms of, of climate, but in terms of light, you know, the, the light in summer and the darkness in winter, and people are very attuned to the cycles of nature in Scandinavia in a, in a pretty deep way. And that formed me very early on. And, um, and then I lived in food cultures like France as a young person, you know, where food really is culture more than convenience. It really is a way of living and a way of articulating your time. Um, so all of this was in me, and it was looking for a place and a time to sort of find itself and, and articulate itself in me and through my work. And I was in New York as a photographer um, for about 15 years and a writer. I got a call from Garden Design Magazine to shoot something, and I really fell under the spell of horticulture very quickly, um, not only as a, as a visual subject, but also the, the history and the, the naming in horticulture, all the sort of deep, deep thought that goes into the plant world and the history of it and the practice of it. And, um, and I think ultimately all those things led me to this property. Yeah. Uh, the universe was listening, apparently, yeah. somehow. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so here I am. You were in New York City for 15 years. You're an internationally known photographer. How old are you when you first see Stonegate Farm and it and it really speaks to you, Matthew? I'm about 35, 34, wow. 35. Wow. I had already sort of grown weary of this, you know, the, the difficulties of urban life. I think particularly New York, um, the sort of cement and steel of New York and the way it's made. Um, and the fact that I was out shooting gardens um, um, everywhere and, and really wanting to have soil and not cement and steel under my feet at some point. Yeah. Um, and I kind of put that out there as an idea and a thought, and then that did materialize. This is kind of a, um, an interesting origin story for this in, in some ways, but I did a trip with my father for a sailing magazine. We went across the Atlantic, and uh, I was living in New York at the time, and I, I gave up everything and, and went and sailed and lived in the Caribbean for a couple of months on very little and living on a boat. And had been out in the ocean under the vastness of the sky and the water out in the middle of nowhere and the immensity of the sea. And I came back to New York so humbled by the natural world and its forces that New York just seemed kind of... Um, uh, you know, ridiculous by comparison. Mm. It didn't seem to have the same spell on me anymore. Anymore, and I think that's where the change began. I started, I started, I started leaving New York after I came back from being so deep uh, in the natural world. You see Stonegate, and it speaks to you. Tell us about the yeah. journey. Tell us about the journey, like, like developing this relationship with this piece of land. And and I say that because when I got the Growing Beautiful Food book and I read through the introduction, I read through the different seasonal um, passages and then the end notes. And I and and there is this 
just wonderful love story between you mm. and this piece of property. And mm-hmm. so I would love you to share some of that origin story and early relationship with listeners. Yeah, I, I, that's a great way to put it because it is a love story and it's it's really built on a kind of reciprocity. I mean, I needed this place in my life at that time mm-hmm. as much as I do now, but I really needed it then and it needed me. I mean, these buildings were time-worn and ragged and all the bones were there, all the timber frame bones of, of a 19th century um, farm property, but they were loose at the tenons and needing a lot of care and I was the person for the job. And I really mm-hmm. dove into it with, with a lot of energy and passion. A lot of people uh, came by and asked me, what are you up to, you know, <laughs> incredulously, <laughs> because they hadn't seen someone go at something in that neighborhood with so much uh, intensity and passion and drive. Clearly, I, I was passionately in love with the work of the restoration, the meaningful work of it. Um, the bringing it back to something beautiful, uh, as I imagine it once was, although I even took it, I think a little bit beyond that because mm-hmm. I, I introduced a lot of 19th century ornament. Uh, it's a carpenter Gothic property. So it's all board and batten, uh, which I love cause that reminds me of Scandinavia in my childhood. There's a lot of wooden board and batten buildings. And so of course I, I turned finials. I made a verge board, which is the scrolled fretwork underneath the eaves on, on these buildings from this period. And I became a big um, disciple uh, of Andrew Jackson Downing. Um, mm. and, and Downing has, his fame has diminished, I suppose, but back in the middle of the 19th century, he was the most famous um, landscape architect uh, and pomologist uh, almost in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was really uh, quite well known and influential. And um, he was born right in Newburgh, which is which is the town that I'm in. I'm in the hamlet of Bombville in the town of Newburgh. So it's interesting that, that this architecture that I loved and um, the all the all the plant and naming and history that I loved uh, happened here through Downing. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I came through the sort of oversized stone gates for the first time, the gates that the farm is named after, I was really taken in. And, and what was interesting for me, uh, having grown up um, with an older style architecture in Scandinavia and the country, is that the buildings had a kind of um, conversational proximity. They were sort of standing there, the, you know, the old ice house and the carriage house and the potting shed and the stable uh, and the barn sort of in conversation with each other mm-hmm. uh, like they'd been for a long time. And they seemed very at ease, although a little uh, a little worse for wear. But, but there was something about how the building stood on the land that really appealed to me. Those are subtle but very powerful attractions, I think, when you're yeah. thinking about architecture. And so how many acres is it? And how many how many buildings were on the site when you first got this underway? The lots um, were originally just under one acre, which was the carriage house, which included ice house and stable and potting shed and barn. And then there was a there was a gatehouse, which was the farm manager's house that uh, we also bought later. And then a farm lot that was going to be developed, sadly. Um, and we had to buy it from a developer at the peak of the market before the crash and spent mm. a lot of money <laughs> for 1.2 acres of land uh, and initially bought it uh, as something of a buffer against development. But I couldn't just let it lie fallow and be a wooded buffer. I had to do something productive with it. And that was the, the beginnings of deciding to farm the land. You know, I had been a gardener uh, for a while. I I had already taken the property and, and where there had been farm roads and and access roads to different buildings, I basically tore them up and, and created garden rooms uh, around the buildings. Mm. I evolved from being a garden photographer um, to then having land and creating gardens and then having uh, land and creating a farm. And I still farm like a gardener. <laughs> and my goal is really to turn gardeners into food growers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, as much as I love um, gardening and I, I I have a book out on gardening as well called the photographic garden mm-hmm. uh, book on photographing gardens you know all the aesthetic hierarchies and all the all the uh, intense history and practice of horticulture is amazing but I wanted something more dimensional and I think in other words I wanted to have something beautiful and edible yeah uh, and I wanted to create a farm that was like a garden and Downing's motto actually was buono e bella 
so beautiful and practical, which is William Morris's motto too, mm-hmm. that you shouldn't have anything in your life but that's not either beautiful or practical. Yeah. And I think the idea of farming beautifully or growing beautiful food um, is really a way to to have those ideas commingled um, in a meaningful way. We we really do need more beauty in our lives as a foil against uh, everything that's coming at us every day. Mm-hmm. So, and when sometimes I'll go up in the morning and sit out uh, looking east across the farm and have a cup of coffee and sit there and just um, let the morning happen. And the sun is starting to splinter through the trees and everything's starting to wake up and, and begin moving. And it's almost as though nothing can, nothing can get you after that during mm-hmm. the day if mm-hmm. you start your day like that. Yeah. And I built these things into my life as a kind of um, as purposeful work uh, to farm and grow and garden, of course, is very um, humbling uh, because of how little we actually know. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I wanted I wanted that challenge all the time of being a grower. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I also wanted to have a kind of, of ritual that was built around meaningful work uh, where you both appreciate the process, but you also embrace uh, the beauty of it. Yeah. You say we. Tell me about who is in this endeavor with you and what your your family and, and co-workers consist of there on, on the farm. Yeah, I, I, I say we because I think if I use I or too much of too many personal pronouns, it really just sounds... Um, uh, kind of ridiculous that I did all of this, but I really did do most of this <laughs> by myself. I learned early on that if I was to outsource uh, work to anybody else, I would not get what I wanted. And I began a long um, process of insourcing. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot of skills um, through, uh, a, again, a lot of empirical trial and error. Um, but uh, I had come with some building skills. I had built things in the past. I had, I had worked as a carpenter's apprentice, and we always built things when I was a child. And of course, making buildings is just sort of an exponential um, a version of building something small as a kid. Um, so I, I love the process of building. And uh, so when I say we, I get I have help every year um, that comes to the farm. And I initially started the farm, uh, I was married, and started the farm with my partner, my wife. So that's how that began, and mm-hmm. my, my children grew up here. Mm-hmm. My children actually now live in Europe with their mother, um, but they come to the farm in the summers and, mm-hmm. and in winter, and, as, and I go over to Europe and see them as much as I can. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, sometimes not being able to say we as much as you want to is a burden because you realize that if things are needing, needing to be fixed or done or done right, right or done I. in a certain way, <laughs> yeah, you have to sort of go out there on your own and really do it or at least at least oversee uh, how it's being done. Right. Um, and I said earlier that I like the, you know, I do like the the humility of being a grower. I think every year you know, you're, you're humbled by something, um, not coming through from seed, uh, Mm. you know, being taken out by some critter or, or some fungus or something else that happens in the living world that you just don't have control over. And either you sort of embrace the process of being humbled in nature, which I actually love. I'm one of those people who goes down to the ocean and wants it to be just thrown about by the waves. <laughs> so I, I like I like the I like the idea of smallness in the world. Um, I think there's a little too much hubris and a little too much arrogance uh, from in humankind. And I think we're seeing we're obviously seeing the mm. the results of that these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think being a grower and being humbled by growing uh, and all the and all the challenges of it is uh, actually a very healthy healthy thing to have in your life. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Matthew Benson, owner and steward of Stonegate Farm, a beautiful, edible, and botanical organic farm in New York's Hudson Valley. We'll be back to hear more about Matthew's work and mission. Stay with us. Happy seasonal threshold to all of us. Just like the monthly full moon, we know these equinoxes and solstices, these seasonal thresholds are coming, reliably arriving. 
but they always seem to surprise me and leave me thinking, look at how full that moon is this month, or such an autumn. Has there ever been such a beautiful September? Maybe it's just my memory that's funny that way. Matthew Benson has a lovely, artistic and writerly way of articulating and capturing a thought and an idea. Here was the sentence that grabbed me in the first part of our conversation. He says, nature is an obsession and light is an obsession and relationship with nature is reciprocal where it needs you and you need it in a deep way. All of this was in me and it was really looking for a way and a place and a time to articulate itself in me and through my life and work, he ends. And then, just as though the universe was listening somehow, he says, he found this piece of land and he joined with it and its history and his future to find the meaningful and beautiful work of it. I just love that he was listening as much as the universe was listening and speaking to him. Because no matter if growing and gardening on any grand scale are not your most meaningful work, just the act of caring for a houseplant puts you into that space. And as Matthew points out, being a grower and being humbled by growing and the challenges of it, this is a really healthy thing to have in your life. This is the meaningful work indeed. Now back to our conversation with Matthew and his growing journey. When you first started, did you have in your mind a vision of a farm that would sell and and develop, you know, tinctures and medicinal herbs and a CSA? Like, did you have that in mind or has that evolved over time, Matthew? I think I would say that's evolved. I didn't mm. have a big blueprint when I started. And I'm also a great believer in a kind of um, creative procrastination. <laughs> um, in other words, I will buy something that I, that I love for the integrity of the materials. I don't know where I'm going to use it. And it sits in a barn for two or three years, and then it emerges as the absolutely right thing at that time in that moment, even though it wasn't right three years before. Right. You know, and I've, I've also been... Um, salvaging greenhouses since I came here. <laughs> so I've been finding old glass greenhouses here and there um, by W.W. W. Ludden or, or Lord and Burnham and taking them apart and transporting them and bringing them to the farm. In fact, the latest greenhouse that went up was one I rescued on Long Island uh, down on Lido Beach, which was hit by Hurricane Sandy. Mm. The greenhouse was in one direction and the house was another. And the guy had put it up for sale. It was still in reasonable shape, but it, he couldn't... Uh, uh, repair it or repair it on site. I came and took it down piece by piece and had it on, had it in, in storage for about three years and it just went up last fall. Mm. And it's a, a beautiful addition to, to our growing space. And, you know, one of these great Gothic curved glass, Lord and Burnham greenhouses, mm. um, that have such structural integrity that they're a pleasure to, to build. Yeah. So currently, what are the kind of public offerings of the farm? Uh, the farm is doing, we're doing a number of things now. So we we have uh, a food program where there's a CSA. Mm -hmm. We also do events in the flower farm where we will have suppers and we're curating these suppers in such a way where you're getting food from the farm, but you're also we're doing um, uh, sort of performance events with different people uh, in mm -hmm. the flower farm that combined eating as an idea. We are cultivating um, all the medicinal and botanical herbs that we're going to be using for our product line. We're starting, and we're really in the beta phase of this, but we are starting this line of, of organic, sustainable beauty and wellness products, mm -hmm. um, both topical and ingestibles from the farm. And that's quite a interesting challenge so that's yeah. been occupying a lot of our time this season yeah yeah so you have quite a few books uh the the one that i am particularly taken by i mentioned earlier which is growing yeah. beautiful food this one came out from rodale in 2015 and you've done quite a bit of work with them being kind of a, a vocal ambassador and then an author and photographer for rodale Yes. Talk about growing beautiful food. You know, in this world of a lot of cookbooks, a lot of garden books, what were you 
what were you hoping to achieve with adding another one to the world? Uh, I, I think Rodale wanted it to be more practical than than probably I wanted it to be. I really wanted it to be a meditation on meaningful work mm. through uh, a relationship with landscape and garden and growing food and feeding people and creating community. So I wanted something a little bit, uh, and and that is that is integrated into the book, of course. But um, there's also a lot of practical advice on how to grow uh, and choose different varietals in the garden, in the orchard, in the flower farm. Um, so I. I really wanted it to be something uh, inspirational for people because what happened to me was that I was not a grower. I was not, uh, you know, I was not a farmer. And in fact, my daughter, when she was quite young, um, I remember coming to her school once after having started the farm and I had come from shoveling horse manure at a neighbor's <laughs> farm. And I think I was pretty mucked up and I came in to drop something off for her at school and she came home later and she was so embarrassed. And she said, Daddy, you are supposed to be a photographer, not a farmer, you know, <laughs> and and she was somehow um, not happy with with my transformation. And I had to tell her that actually farming is, is really becoming something that's a little bit more hip than it used to be. Yeah, I sort of had to speak with her uh, in her language on her terms. And she she did she did sort of accept it. And of course, now she loves it. And I think she called me a farmographer for a while. <laughs> she made peace with the idea that I was going to be, you know, farming as well as photographing. But she had to do it on she had to make peace on her own terms. So she started calling me a farmographer, <laughs> which I thought was quite, quite cute as a way to reconcile what I was doing. But she loves the she absolutely loves the farm. And, you know, the interesting thing about uh, about where you end up in, in, in your work and how your work is all connected ultimately because you're in it um, uh, is that, you know, I'm a better farmer and gardener because I'm a photographer hmm. and I'm a better photographer because I'm a gardener and a photographer. Now, I want you to unpack that a little bit for me. Sure. Yeah. So when I go on a cookbook shoot, you know, let's say we're, I mean, I'll just give an example. Let's say we're shooting um, uh, we're shooting beets and the beet greens are wilted and the beets are in, on set and we need, you know, we need greens that are going to work. And, you know, I could go out and grab some Swiss chard from the garden and, and create beet greens out of that, for example. I mean, that's just basic, um, plant, plant knowledge. So I'm a, I'm a better photographer in terms of practicality because I understand food, um, intimately because I grow it. So, it's not like I'm just putting food on the set somewhere and shooting it as an object. I'm shooting it, mm -hmm. and hopefully at my best, I have some narrative understanding of how that's grown, what its habit is in the garden, what it needs, you know, what aspects of light it needs, what kind of soil. I have a deeper understanding of, of the actual uh, food that I'm photographing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that helps me, and I think it makes me a better photographer if I've, I have more knowledge, certainly, of, of what I'm photographing. Mm -hmm. And by the same by the same uh, token, you know, when I'm out designing a bed or working in, on the farm, and I'm integrating and very intensively planting rows of greens. Or, or any other bed, I'm always thinking visually because I'm going to be photographing it. And you end up with a beautiful bed that's that's inspirational to sort of go and harvest in. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll, we'll do we'll do interesting. First of all, there's not a lot of dirt showing on my farm because I, I, I'm i farming basically on a little over an acre. Uh, so I really have to farm with a lot of forethought and um, and think like a plant, like we'll grow lettuce in mid-season beneath uh, peppers and eggplant. Uh, because it, it takes advantage of the shade underneath those taller mm -hmm. uh, 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 plants. So, uh, you know, there's not a lot of visible dirt anywhere on my farm. And so um, I did that initially uh, because I didn't, you know, dirt doesn't photograph very well. So I really wanted these wonderful tapestries of color and form uh, in my growing beds. And then, of course, I realized that they created their own kind of uh, relationships and they they took advantage of each other um, you know the weeds were suppressed by having lettuce underneath uh, eggplant and the lettuce was happy because it had the shade of the eggplant leaves so um, there's a, there's a kind of nice biointensive process that you go through when you're farming on small acreage uh, mm -hmm. that I think is helpful I think it's good to have boundaries I think it's good to have certain parameters within which you work because you can usually end up going deeper and getting more imaginative when there's some limit 
-hmm. I think having limitless space, um, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when I tried to get an agricultural district in my county, I went up in front of the legislature initially and they turned me away. They said, well, you're too small to be a farm. Uh, and I came back and I got some advocacy from uh, the Cooperative Extensions and a few other people. And I went back the next year and I gave a pretty impassioned um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> application in front of the the, uh, the county's uh, legislature talking about the future of farming and how the future of farming may well be quite small and integrated into community mm -hmm. uh, the way my farm is. I mean, my farm is integrated into an R1 residential community. And as farms used to be in the 19th century and earlier, you know, farms were everywhere. Uh, and when you hike in the Hudson Valley where I live, there are stone walls everywhere where farms used to be. And it's now forests and hiking trails. So farms didn't used to be out there. You know, farms were among us. Mm -hmm. uh, and everywhere you lived in the more rural pastoral past, you know, in America, you you had you were aware of farms. Um, and. So I farm uh, in a very uh, old-fashioned way, uh, but it's actually quite a modern way when I think about the future of food and how we might need to be farming. Mm -hmm. I mean, there could be a point, uh, certainly even in my lifetime, where you know, uh, lettuce greens from Salinas, California just won't make it out east. Yeah, it's that's... too long of a trek, and we don't have the resources, and the fuel is too expensive, and we're going to need to adjust, you know, yeah. and we can't get that orange from 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 chile in december because the costs are it's cost prohibitive to get it i'm kind so, of hoping so right actually yeah and so having farms integrated into communities i would love if my farm was um was replicated a thousandfold everywhere um and anyway i i, I spoke to the legislature about what i thought the future of farming was and how my farm was a, an example of of that model, uh, and they gave me my agricultural district. I'm the smallest ag district in the <laughs> county now. <laughs> I love that, and uh, I'm proud of it. Yeah. And, um, uh, I, 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 you know, and sometimes I'll lose a CSA member, um, and I'll be disappointed, of course, because you build community. I mean, part of the idea behind this farm is to build community too. Um, and you know, in, in a lot of communities in America, people are just heading home to flat screens and, and frozen food, and not and not in a interacting with their neighbors or, or anything. And this created a kind of uh, community center, my CSA. Mm. So, but when people would say they, they were not going to join, um, uh, and then they followed that with, because we're going to grow our own, we're starting our own small garden this year. It was always hugely rewarding for me yeah. to hear that. And it was a mission accomplished for me because the farm is really, it's basically a not-for-profit. It, it's meant to be a model uh, of, of an idea of farming that I want people to aspire to, uh, to have a food shed that's as close as their backyard, um, to take some responsibility for their own well-being and nutrition and health, and also to add, um, you know, by my measure, a, a kind of meaningful relationship with nature, yeah. which... Um, which gardeners have um, and food growers have uh, in a big way because you're 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 relying not only on 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 your growing for 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 visual pleasure but also for your you know for your well-being for your health for your diet I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In this fourth of our series on seeds, we move to a more abstract consideration of seeds. Matthew Benson of Stonegate Farm knows his way around organic seed and seed saving. But in his story, I was just as moved by the metaphoric aspect of seeds in our lives. What values and concepts and passions are sown deeply in us at different points in our lives regarding our interdependence with plants and nature, and when these come out of dormancy and grow us on into who we're supposed to be. We'll be right back with more of Matthew's story on Stonegate Farm, the smallest agricultural district in his county. Stay with us.
Hey, it's Jennifer. I'll tell you that I have so enjoyed this four-week deep dive into even just five or six of this world's interesting seed keepers and their stories in our world this past month. And thank you to everyone who wrote in and shared your appreciation. From the sounds of it, you all enjoyed the Focused series too, which makes me really happy. Matthew articulates towards the end of this part of our conversation, the role community plays at Stonegate Farm. That, quote, part of his goal is to build community as well as to grow other growers. He describes how Stonegate Farms and its CSA is something of a community center, a model of an idea of farming that I want others to be inspired by, he says, for people to add beauty, meaningful relationship to nature, and responsibility for individual health and well-being to their lives. That emphasis on community is so strongly a part of cultivating place for me, so strongly a part of the powerful potential held in our own home gardens and growing endeavors to connect us more deeply to one another in this world. Whether it's connecting me to you over these airways or connecting you to your neighborhood via you out front working in your garden and chatting with neighbors as they go by, our gardens help to remind us all that we, the humans, the plants, the wildlife, and the seeds, we are all in this together. And working together intentionally, we make a difference in this world. If you ever want to connect more directly to me or to one another, head over to cultivatingplace.com and sign up for the monthly newsletter of View From Here, or comment on weekly posts on Instagram and Facebook, and I'll get back to you. I so enjoy hearing from you and connecting back, and I share everything I get with Sarah. Now back to Matthew Benson and Stonegate Farm. And hey, thank you for listening. On your farm... And through, mm-hmm. through your book and through your other sort of platforms of communication, it is clear to me that you are, um, as, as you've indicated, too, that you have many skills and you have many talents and you have, you know, multifaceted interests, which is part of, part of the joy that a garden or a farm will bring to us because they require that of us. But mm-hmm. when I look through your, your book and I see just the, the depth of your, your literary uh, knowledge and enjoyment. I, I ask myself because I think we all wonder this every day. Like, how do you stay focused? How do you stay not overwhelmed by incoming information, but still growing and learning as as a person, as a thinker, as a planter? Yeah, I think I said earlier that I, I am you know, I, 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 of course, I read a lot and I write and I think like like any any sentient person. But I, I really have a relationship with purposeful work and working through problem solving in the landscape and that sort of empirical learning. I, I love, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I stay I stay fresh and focused and engaged by doing. Um, so I'll put a project in front of me uh, that'll be a challenge that I have to solve and, and an idea that I want to express on, on my farm. Um, for example, we planted uh, a dozen or so uh, figs in a greenhouse uh, in the ground. We're in zone six, so we're growing uh, tender figs um, uh, uh, in the greenhouse. And, and they're already at about six feet tall and lobed and, and putting out fruit. Mm. And we're going to have to guide them, you know, and, and keep them safe through the winter. So we're going to, I have to develop a system of in-ground heating that just keeps them just away from being frozen, but not warm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there are things like that that keep me engaged. You put, you put challenges up in front of you that are interesting. I mean, starting this medicinal and botanical, yeah. um, Herb, herbal product line is a challenge. Um, we're realizing that we need formulators and we need to figure out how to create these products and they have to have efficacy. Uh, they have to really work. They have to be beautiful. They have to smell great. They have mm. to they have to last. They have to sort of resist microbial contamination in their jars. I mean, this is a whole other level uh-huh. <laughs> for me of working with landscape because um, you know, we are growing um, everything here, and at some point, if we if we scale up, we may have to outsource to other organic farms. But um, 
you know, the idea of what we're doing with this new product line, this new challenge is that we, you know, we do have a place that's a vernacular. You know, these products are coming from a place and I have a deep relationship with the plants that grow here. I understand uh, I understand, uh, you know, chokeberry, Aronia melanocarpa, and how it tastes and how dry it is, um, and 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 also how incredible it is as an antioxidant and um, as as a sort of wellness tincture that we could produce uh, from it. So, I, I've developed these relationships with with um, with everything that I grow, and so the future challenges for me are going to be to how to integrate them into these beauty products and mm-hmm. make them. Um, uh, things that people want to uh, want to buy and want to experience, and um, and I think that be- because we have, you know, these we're not just selling. I mean, we are not just selling some serum or tincture. We are selling an idea of of um, a kind of sustainable way of being in the world that we value, and we're selling the story of this farm and and how it's how it's. Um, integrated and 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 for example we're using solar infusions because i believe you know there's something in sunlight that's even beyond knowing that Mm -hmm. that helps to articulate these products and Mm -hmm. i want them to be infused in some sunlight at least for a certain amount of time yeah so we're, we're taking ideas from the farm that come from being here and being here deeply and putting them into these products and you know i'm a deeply romantic person uh i'm also a bit of a pleasurist or a hedonist i guess (laughs) and um when you're when you have all this food and beauty right right out your back door um um it's 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 important that you approach this kind of growing with a lot of um uh uh, a, a lot of pleasure in mind in other words the pleasure of walking out and eating food right off the vine of picking tomatoes and putting them in your mouth of eating edible flowers off the farm creating salads you know taking fresh fruit um off a bramble you know these are all deeply romantic things to do on your on your land and um i think the best gardeners and growers are romantics in that way Mm -hmm. um you know uh because there is a kind of connective tissue that you draw between your outsideness as a human being and the natural world that is is made really um powerful by growing and and participating uh, in the process i mean every to this day every season that i start in march with a little speck of of genome of a seed and by august and september it's turned into this massive growing uh living thing (laughs) um i'm just amazed Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and you you know you can't help but be um be sort of astounded and taken aback by that process and it's 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 great to be a participant in that yeah now you've talked a little bit about challenges that you identify and purposefully take on for yourself if there are other more kind of existential challenges or you know on the ground challenges that you face in this work what are those matthew um I, that's interesting that you ask me this this season because of the weather. <laughs> yeah. Because the weather this season was such a challenge, and 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 it was exactly as you put it. It was an existential crisis for me, because I have such a deep and abiding relationship with this land that I've built up and developed over 20 years, and I was starting to feel the first, the first sort of. Um, hints of of disillusion you know and and of struggle and of and of sort of saying to myself is is this really worth it after the third week of rain you know Mm -hmm. when all the calendula was was rotting and the chamomile was was falling apart and everything else Mm -hmm. and so i had a bit of a a crisis and my you know my feeling is i have young children too uh is that the uh is the instability of the climate uh that we've been responsible for in large part Mm. is such a deep and frightening threat to life on this planet. Um, and you really feel it as a gardener and a grower because you're so much, you're so much closer to nature and, you know, the vagaries of weather coming at you are so much more, um, you know, they trip you up so much more deeply. When I lived in the city, I didn't, you know, if a storm came, I wasn't worried about a tree falling on me or some crop failing or anything else. So you do, 
you do develop a much closer relationship uh, to growing and living things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the other the other interesting part of this is that because this property is old and was was planted almost like an arboretum 150 years ago, there are so many trees that are almost in hospice around me here. Mm. Beautiful old trees that are really about to fall out of the sky at any minute, mm-hmm. I always feel. And I never felt that uh, in the city. And um, so sometimes when weather when weather uh, acts out, uh, you know, we had a tornado touchdown in May this year. Mm. And it took out eight uh, American linden trees, uh, a couple of ginkgos, massive uh, 75 to 100 foot trees, just it just with a puff, you know, yeah, yeah. it just knocked them out of the sky. And um, so that was quite frightening to have to be underneath weather that powerful. Now, the silver lining there is, of course, those trees were shading about, you know, a quarter of my growable space. And now there's tons of light so I can mm. expand my farm. <laughs> so there's there's maybe an upside to it. I, I you know, that, that I can actually uh, I can grow more on my land now because those trees are gone. But you you know, you do feel uh, in in all this instability with climate more fragile, and mm-hmm. that's that's a kind of existential threat and actual threat that you that's going to take some reckoning with, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt this season, um, I felt the first, I think probably because of the tornado hit, um, and then we had uh, sort of extremes after that. I felt more humility than I actually bargained for. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's almost that you feel, you feel the losses, but you actually, it's also one of the facets of feeling life for real. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very, you know, and part of when I, when I mentioned earlier that I sort of have this relationship with humility that I like to cultivate, Mm -hmm. you know, with, uh, as, as many gardeners do, you know, part of that, I think if I think back is that when I was growing up in Scandinavia, the Scandinavians, because of being so much closer to nature in its extremes, frankly, um, they feel, um, they also develop a relationship with, um, transitoriness and melancholy in a healthy way. Mm Mm-hmm. The Swedes can be can be very melancholy, and it's part of the culture, and it's not thought of as sadness or sorrow or something you want to banish from your psyche. Um, and so there's a kind of acceptance that that we are small in the face of nature. I mean, you know, the winters in Scandinavia are very long and very cold, and and it's sparsely populated. And um, I, I think that's probably where some of my interest in um, not sort of being above all of this, but mm-hmm. being in it and understanding the trials of being in it. That's when that probably developed when I was quite young. Mm. And there is nothing like the garden or nature to remind us just how not so great we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And how and, great it is. And how yeah. great it is, right? Like, yeah, yeah. the gifts. Uh, mm. I would love to end, Matthew, if you have a copy of the book near you. Do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I would love to end with you reading for us from that back page, the notes from the Wonder Ground. Late fall is post-mortem time, time to sort through the pathology of what did or didn't work this season, what grew well, what failed to deliver. Seed packets are always as full of promise as they are seeds. Flowers and vegetable annuals live out a lifetime in a few months, birth, growth, decline, death, a nicely framed physiological snapshot compared to us. Plants may not have consciousness as we know it, but they can tell us something deep about living. Free from the existential burden of defining themselves, they just are. We, on the other hand, are obsessed with self-definition. More than ever in a hyper-connected social media world where fretting about online likes, tweets, and posts is a form of virtual affirmation and seems to give distorted value to it all. Just being used to be enough to tramp a perpetual journey, as Whitman said. But sit in an airport, a bar, or a cafe, or even walk down the street these days, and you'll see that everyone is somewhere else, drifting in a virtual trance. Nothing is present. Wherever we go, it seems, there we aren't. One thing farming asks you, besides considerable patience and humility, is to be present, to be deeply engaged in the physical world. There's no other way to do it. 
for me, this little farm keeps it real. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. Thanks. Matthew Benson is an internationally known photographer as well as writer and organic farmer. He lectures frequently on garden, food, and landscape photography, as well as on small-scale farming, sustainability, and organics. He serves on a Congressional Agricultural Committee advocating for the rights of small organic growers. His book is Growing Beautiful Food and is based on the growing practices and great beauty at Stonegate Farm. I'd like to leave Matthew's journey story with a few thoughts from the end of our conversation. Thoughts that seem relevant to emphasize as September ends. Having grown up in a country with a very long, very dark, and very cold winter, Matthew remarks, there is something beyond knowing in sunlight. And then, the pleasure of walking out and picking fresh food is a deeply romantic thing to do. There's connective tissue between your own outsideness and the natural world that is made really powerful by growing and participating with it. I hope these thoughts serve you as they serve me in this end of our sunniest season here in the Northern Hemisphere. And as of last Friday and the autumnal equinox, we're now leaning into autumn and winter with their own particular pleasures, among which we can include days where we miss exquisitely that something beyond knowing in sunlight. Join us again next week when we move from the seeds of September to the artistry of October, and we kick off a second series with five artists all making their way in the world through botanical artistry of one kind or another. I find the ways in which the botanical world informs and inspires us to be fascinating. I'm painfully aware that I could have continued the seed series for many more weeks. The good people working in, growing and sharing with the world about seed in innovative and wonderful ways are legion. So we'll come back to this topic again in the future, trust me. And for all of you who sent in seed keeper names, thank you. The more we look around for ways in which we humans express our love and need for the natural world, the more you see this everywhere. In October, we'll be speaking with and hearing about the journeys of a few artists. And once again, this is a series that could be our sole focus for months. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast so you never miss a conversation, as well as to read more about and see many photos from Matthew Benson's work and life on Stonegate Farm, head over to cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.